Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. I, I find this one of the places that gives me peace in my rather hectic life. I said to Owen before we came um, through, you know, if we were to run out of subjects, which I don't think we will, I could talk to you about Ebola. I spent all yesterday on it. I spend vast amounts of time on it. Um, life in my job is never quiet. And then you arrive here and just look out of those windows at that sunset and the light and the drive from the station. It's wonderful. So it's lovely to be with you. And I'll speak up. Thank you. Uh, it's great to talk about something that I care deeply about. So I'm going to talk to you about antimicrobial resistance, and I'll try not to slide into saying AMR, but it means antimicrobial resistance. And, ant and microbes take in very little bugs, viruses, bigger bugs, bacteria, and even bigger bugs. I'd have to think what they are. Protozoa. I'm not an expert microbiologist. Indeed, I started as a hematologist, a blood doctor, but I've slowly, through a very odd career route, ended up as chief medical officer and therefore in charge of the public's health. And um, I'm going to go into how I got there and all about it. But the real emergency, and I have likened it to climate change, because we, humanity, are doing it to ourselves. It's global, and it kills people, and it will take us backwards if we don't sort it out. It's already a reality with antibiotic resistance. So in Europe, I wonder if you know how many people die of car crashes and road traffic accidents. About 25,000. It's the same number every year who die of sepsis caused by antibiotic-resistant bugs. In the States, a cautious estimate is 23,000 a year. And if you get across to Southeast Asia, one young child or baby dies every five minutes of a resistant bug. So this is a global problem with a significant impact on our health, the public's health. And it's really difficult to reduce this threat, and I want to go through the reasons why. And I'm going to tell you what we've got the UK government doing, and then what else is happening. And it's a very complex problem, because when I was a young doctor, of course resistance happened. What did I do? I opened the cupboard, and I got out the next antibiotic. But, as I'll talk to you in a bit, no longer do drug companies make lots of new antibiotics. The cupboard is bare. So we get a new resistance. We haven't got a new antibiotic. And it's more complex than humans. So I really want us to think about the broad, the broad picture of it. Let me start by telling you how I came to be not just the chief medical officer, the CMO, but as a colleague internationally called me, the chief marketing officer <laughs> for antimicrobial resistance. One of the um, pleasures of my role 
is I'm appointed to the civil service at the most senior level to act as an independent advisor to government. So we change party at the election, you still have me. You may or may not think that's a good idea. And in that role, I get to write an annual report every year, which is independent. And I looked at the 165 years of my predecessors' reports, all men, (laughs) and how they'd done it. And they seemed to be doing two things. One was surveillance, the state of the nation's health, and the other was advocacy. So I thought, I can do that. But I'm going to separate them. So I do a surveillance volume, which is data-rich, full of lots of data, very much more transparent than it's ever been before because it's all available then once I've got hold of it from many places on the web for people by local government area and everything to pull down, displayed in new ways. So, in fact, I'm using a lot of cartograms. So we're used to ordinary maps and the size of bits of the country on ordinary maps. I've learnt to know those as chloropleths. Hardly ever have to say that. I clearly need to practice. Cartograms show the country, but each bit of the country is made bigger or smaller depending on the population that's there. So they give you a different take on things. So my surveillance volume. And then I'm doing an advocacy volume where I get together a lot of experts on one subject, we talk about what are the issues, they go and write the chapters, their names are on them, so they get not only the credit for that chapter, but they can take the stick if they've got it wrong. And I write the policy chapter about what does this mean for policy and the nation and what should be done. So I thought as my first one, I would do something which I thought was really pretty easy, non-controversial, infection. And I thought, that's great. It takes you from the community to the hospital. It takes you from young to old. And we could do life course. We could do all sorts of interesting things. So I got the people together, and they all were very excited um, because these reports do influence policy. Went off and wrote their chapters and came back after some guidance and editing six months later to talk about their chapters and what they would like recommending. And as I listened, I thought, well, actually, I thought, oh, shit. I thought, oh, shit. Antimicrobial resistance has got so much worse since I was an active clinician, and it's out of control. And here are all the experts saying that, but they haven't found voice, as I call it. They haven't found a way to get the politicians to listen and do something about it. So I said, I think the issue is antimicrobial resistance. Yes, yes, Sally, you've you've heard us, you've listened, you're right. Okay, so what do we need to do? And there was a whole set of discussions about what needed doing. I don't know why it hit me. One of the reasons I'm quite good at my job is I understand my way around government. And I said... If it's as bad as you tell me, yes, it is, here's the data, I said, right, then clearly it has to be on the government risk register. So I put in my policy chapter that I wanted it on the government risk register. 
Three days after publication, I was hauled into a very senior minister, not a health minister, so I was a bit surprised, thinking, oh, what's he going to say? And he said, do you stand by this? And I said, well, of course, I wouldn't publish it otherwise. He said, right, we've got to take this seriously. Have you seen this government antimicrobial um, strategy for the whole of the UK and everything? And I said, yes. He said, what do you think of it? I said, well, it's all right. And he said, I think it's wet. And I said, oh, well, yes, it is, actually. Does it answer your report? No. He said, right, I'm pulling it. They can have six months to answer your report, and we will put it on the risk register of the nation. So at the top of our risk register, until now, we've had pandemic flu and terrorism and climate change. And now we're going to have AMR up there, antimicrobial resistance. So then my colleagues got together with various other people and they did a much better um, antimicrobial strategy for the country. So that's kind of the story. But let me take you back to the beginning of antibiotics. And all of you will know that using antibiotics is modern. It was modern until the sulfonamides, but the big... Um, big breakthrough was Alexander Fleming at St. Mary's Hospital, who noticed, I gather he had a filthy laboratory, that on an agar plate, which is essentially meat broth jellified, on an agar plate, and they're in petri dishes, which are little round dishes about that size, about that deep, all sorts of bugs were growing. And one day when he came in, he saw some clear circles and he realized something had inhibited the growth in those circles. And that was penicillin. I love penicillin because it's the blue in Stilton and the blue in Rockford that's <laughs> injected with kind of knitting needles. So I love it for that reason. Um, but of course, it's changed history. Before that, before penicillin, 43% of people died of infection. At the moment, 7%, but going upwards because of resistance. So it absolutely, dramatically changed our lives and those of our forefathers and made a big difference. Interestingly, when Fleming went to get his Nobel Prize, he predicted that resistance would occur. So he recognized that bugs are canny little buggers. And bugs have nucleic acid, like DNA. You're used to us having DNA. Bacteria have DNA. Viruses can be RNA ones, but just another nucleic acid. And one of the features of DNA is that as it replicates, copies itself for the progeny, the offspring, it can rather easily change. And you just have to change one molecule, and then it's different. And so it is Darwinian survival of the fittest that there are these little changes, and often they don't matter. But if actually that little change means the bug isn't resistant to penicillin, then it will multiply. And just think about the fact that they multiply every 20 minutes and you begin to see how easy it is for resistance to develop. An additional problem is that 
not only can you get it in their strand of DNA that controls how they are the bugs, but you can also get it in little infectious particles, which are circles called plasmids, which sit in, in the bacterial cells. Fine. They get it by chance, Darwinian, and then they multiply. But they can multiply in the cell so that they're split up with all the progeny, the infants. They can also, and I haven't found the polite way of saying this, the bacteria can put out a proboscis, a kind of penis-type thing that goes from the bacteria infected with a plasmid to another bacteria, and they can shoot those plasmids through and infect its brother or sister bacteria. And then they're resistant, and they can multiply and make more children who are also resistant. So there are very many ways that once they've developed the resistance, they can pass it on. So it's not at all surprising. He realised, Fleming realised, that Darwinian natural selection would come out to play and that this would result in resistance. And we've seen it from the very beginning. So, despite his um, warning, antibiotic use increased, and we started to develop new antibiotics. So that, as I say, by the end of last century, only 7% of deaths were caused by infections. And antibiotics have revolutionized medicine. When I had a cesarean section, I had antibiotics to protect me and my now 19-year-old. If you have kidney disease, severe renal failure, you will have them to protect you in dialysis and to protect your transplant, heart transplants. People with weakened immune systems, either because they were born that way or they developed them, or we've treated them. So modern cancer treatment is underpinned by antibiotics. Just think, without antibiotics, we will lose the modern era of medicine. It's really very worrying. And if I just pick up antivirals for a moment, we all know about HIV and how important it is, 7% of HIV viruses are resistant to the standard drugs. Think what that will do to what is left of Africa after Ebola. So we had a steady stream of new antibiotics, but unfortunately that golden era ended in 1987. We got a new antibiotic licensed in the early 2000s, in the noughties, about 2003, but it was a reformulation. It was a new way of doing it. It wasn't a brand new antibiotic. There's a couple there, but they haven't yet come through. So... Here we are, standing at the dawn of a post-antibiotic era and what it means. And we have to think through what that's going to mean going forwards in 30 to 50 years' time. Because this isn't about finding one new antibiotic. This is about finding new antibiotics every decade. Or we'll sort it for all of us in this room but my children and their children will not have the advantages. So 
We need to think about that. Let me give you one story, because some of it is about how it's used. Gonorrhea. Now, most of you will think, I don't meet gonorrhea. It doesn't matter. But it's out there. And we look after patients with gonorrhea in special clinics. They get superb treatment. But even with that superb treatment in the last year, even in this country, we have resistance to the best new drug. And I used to talk about the women and the impact on the women in fertility and things. Then someone said, what about the men with urethritis and wanting to pee and having pain all the time? That must be pretty miserable. What about the arthritis that goes with it? And how easily it's transmitted in the modern era when um, sex in middle-aged women is getting more common, as are STDs, let alone the sexuality of our young people, which is probably reducing these days as it happens. At least abortions and teenage conceptions are going down. But there's an example, gonorrhea, which matters. Then the other thing I want to put on the table at this point is it isn't just in humans that we're misusing it. I discovered, I was told, that warships have tetracycline in their paint to stop barnacles sticking on them. <laughs> Food animals don't just get antibiotics to treat an infection. You've got, in this country, that animal's got an infection, we'll treat it, and the rest of the herd. Much worse, America puts over 70% of its antibiotics into animals as growth promotion. It's cheaper than hygiene. It makes them grow fast and fat. So those great steaks I used to love, I've rather gone off. I really have. And, of course, we don't break antibiotics down. So you give them to a cow, what does a cow do with it? It grows bigger and fatter, cheaper, and it pees it onto the ground. So it's there, getting into the water. There are antibiotic-resistant bugs in the Antarctic water. It's, um, they're used, just tipped into the feed, just like animals in fish farming. However... I can now tell you, because the Scots got very upset when I was saying that around the place, that actually in Scotland we use vaccination instead, as do they in Scandinavia, and the Norwegians are helping the Vietnamese fish farms and the Chilean fish farms. And to vaccinate fish, I've got pictures of it, you have to get each fish individually and bung a vaccine into it, and the vaccine's a mixture of three or four vaccines. So... Preventing infection by vaccines is one of the stories. But just remember, we're in a period where a lot of people believe that vaccines are dangerous and that we're doing it to them. Remember that dreadful story of autism caused by vaccines, which of course it wasn't, and we said it wasn't, but people believed it, too many people. So we had an epidemic of measles in, uh, and one death in Cardiff. So it's used everywhere. Aquaculture, agriculture, it gets into wildlife. Don't forget the pets treated with it. Animal husbandry, food preparation, 
and um, as I said, battleships and things. And the relationships between all these different bits are very complex. If I go back to health, we rely on them. Do you know, in England, 35 million courses of antibiotics are prescribed each year. 50% of antibiotics worldwide are sold without a prescription, which is interesting. Just think about that 30 million, 35 million courses sold. The prescribing rate is very variable. So in one bit of the Northeast, it doesn't matter which, and it happens also down in the Midlands, 8.4% of the public were prescribed antibiotics in one year in 2012. In Camden, only 4% were. Now, I don't believe the need was double up in the Northeast or in the Midlands um, where it was. This shows you variability. It's variability of prescription. Is that also variability of demand? Because some of this problem is behavioural. The mother who goes and says, my little bloggins must have antibiotics. He's got to go to school. He's very ill. And the doctor looks and says, doesn't look bacterial to me. I must have it. What does the doctor do? It's very, very difficult. That sort of variability is seen across the states too. So the worst of the states is the Midwest vertically, whereas looking at it from your side, the next, or better, is the East Coast. But the West Coast has far less uh, or lower prescription rates. So from this, I hope what you're beginning to understand is it's our problem, but it's a global problem. And so to attack this, we have to go at it local, individually, locally, regionally, nationally, and globally. And we can't do it as a UK on our own. And I'm going to talk to you a bit about the international work I've been leading and what we're doing. And why is it important? Well, if you take one, um, well, two strains of the same sort of bug, I get a bit stuck on some of these, carbapenem-resistant Klebsiella pneumoniae, which is not uncommon. The first was called the new Delhi metalloproteinase inhibitor <coughs> one. Within 12 months, that had moved from new Delhi to um, uh, 12 other countries. So within a year to 12 other countries, whereas another, which started in Israel and then went to New York down to North Carolina and then across to all of us, in a year was in um, almost as many countries. So because of transport, these things move around. A study in Sweden of young men going traveling essentially no antibiotic resistant in their bugs, in their guts. When they went, 25% of them, when they returned, had antibiotic resistant bugs. Which reminds me to tell you that we have more bugs living in us and on us than we have human cells. And we have to learn to live with them effectively. They're doing good for us. Indeed, there is more and more science showing how in the gut they handle food impacts on what we can, can and do absorb. Clearly, 
This is costing us not only in lives, but in actual money. And Europe did a study and reckoned 600 million lost days of work uh, and societal costs of 1.5 billion euros. Uh, we did a study I funded, 10 billion a year to society, plus a doubling of each hospital patient episode. So if you go into hospital and you have an ordinary infection, fine. It's antibiotic resistance. It doubles the cost. And, I could, and for, in the US, we reckon that the costs, healthcare costs of antimicrobial resistance reach 21 to 34 billion dollars. So this is expensive, but people have not been taking it seriously. Despite all the experts telling us for the last 20 years, this is not a lack of knowledge. And then look across countries at variation. In France, they have a four times greater use of antibiotics. Actually, I was in France at the end of August and um, I wanted to prescribe some antibiotics for a young woman staying with us. And I went into the pharmacy and I said, um, could I have such and such an antibiotic? And the woman handed it over. And while I had my hand on it and she did, she said, well, you should have a prescription. I said, it's all right. I've been in this village for 25 years. I'm a doctor. And she said, oh, yes, my dad knows you and handed it over. <laughs> I could have said it even if I hadn't. But there we are. Greece and Turkey have double the French uh, prescription uses, which is uh, four times greater than ours. So just think about that. So we've got to conserve what we've got. How do we do that? Well, we're funding research to improve guidelines so we know what should be done. Funding research to understand the impact of animal use on human health and the behavioural side. How can we help the public reduce their demand and help doctor-patient interaction because that's quite difficult. We need to get rid of that overuse in food production. But that's actually quite difficult because when I took on the equivalent of my minister for state, um, at the moment Jeremy Hunt, from the states on this issue at a dinner and said, well, you know, you need to reduce your antibiotic use in animals, she said, but there's no evidence it's doing harm was a bit taken aback when I said no evidence doesn't mean it doesn't do harm. It just means you haven't looked. <laughs> the civil servants rushed in and protected her. We need to prevent infection. That's hygiene, infection control. It is terribly important. And vaccines have a major role to play in humans. And, you know... We need to prevent people getting ill. So while viruses are not the focus of what I'm talking about today, though, as I said, there is resistance, people who get flu are at higher risk of getting pneumonia. So don't let them get flu. So go back to the catch it, bin it, kill it when you've got a cold or a, or a flu bug or something like that. So it is hygiene everywhere. Um, and that means in the kitchen, washing our hands before we handle food, washing our hands after we handle food. It means in the lavatory, washing hands after using the lavatory. And I, I can't understand who, who funded it, but there is a study from a few years ago of 
lavatories at a motorway service station, and the men didn't wash their hands half the time. The women were a bit better. It was a third of the time. We also have to sort out the lack of new antibiotics. And the problem there is we haven't incentivized it. So just think about a pharma company. Many of you will have pensions based on pharma companies doing well. They need to make a profit. What makes a profit? It's finding a drug that people buy day in, day out. An effective drug for high blood pressure, for diabetes, or you sell over the counter for headaches, something like that. A statin for reducing cholesterol. But think about antibiotics for infection. With a bit of luck, we're not even having antibiotics, each of us, once in a year. There's not a big profit to be made in that. So we need to try and sort that out. There's a challenge of geography. I've told you how they move uh, these bugs on aeroplanes, in people's guts. They health tourism is contributing. I don't know that I would ever have gone to India for uh, a trans... Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to India for a transplant, and I wouldn't go for plastic surgery, but a lot of people do. But there are people coming back from India where they are in a dreadful mess because of antibiotics-resistant bacteria. And then, of course, they spread them in this country. So we've got a lot of research challenges, new antibiotics needed. We don't, it's very difficult science. It's not just people are being lazy or not making a profit. We need to reduce non-human use, and we need to conserve what we've got and have best practice in clinical use. And I've mentioned vaccines. And part of getting this right will actually be to, when you see a patient in front of you, know that it's a bacteria or not. So some of you will have picked up that I successfully argued in a committee for the Longitude Prize, the new government science prize, to include a rapid diagnostic for antimicrobial resistance. And then I hit the media. My colleagues who'd made the other suggestions said I played foul. <laughs> I said, no, I didn't. We need a rapid diagnostic. I went to the trouble of talking to the public who could vote. There were over 100,000 votes, so thank you. And on antibiotic, European Antibiotic Awareness Day on November the 18th, they will launch, no doubt I'll be part of it, the actual challenge about what we want people to make. And there are already people talking about how they think they can make the right thing. And wouldn't that be great? A rapid diagnostic for that child in the GP clinic. Does he need, or she, need an antibiotic or not? And I'm so thrilled that the public voted for that. That's fantastic. Um, we, that's part of it. Our cross-government strategy commits us not only to putting it on the government risk register, but we're collecting data to see how we're doing, to support research from our research councils, um, and to have a set of metrics with targets to try and reduce use back to where we were five to ten years ago. And we can make a difference. I don't know whether you remember the story of MRSA, and C. difficile that were in the um, 
in about 2005-ish, the early 2000s, killing lots of people. Well, because there were targets and scrupulous hygiene and care, we really got them down. So we've reduced MRSA by 53% since May 2010, and we've got uh, C. difficile down by 46%, and it was already dropping before then. So we can do it, and we really need to work hard at that. I've mentioned that we need more research, but we also need to find a mechanism to um, incentivize a farmer to make new ones. So some of you will have noticed in July the Prime Minister talking about um, antimicrobial resistance and launching a commission with Jim O'Neill, who was the uh, chief economist of Goldman Sachs, leading it. And he is going to look at the market models. What do we need to do in terms of private-public partnerships, public paying, a higher cost for antibiotics or whatever in order to incentivize pharma to produce more antibiotics. And um, the Prime Minister got the support of the G7 um, leaders and everything, so this is working with many countries. And Jim O'Neill knows the heads of state in Brazil and China and India, so he's going to work with them. So I'm hopeful he kicks off in October that by next summer we will have an idea of what are the best market models and then try and get him and the Prime Minister to sell them to people. We need to improve public education, so watch out for European Antibiotic Awareness Day on the 18th of November, and steadily other bits of the world are joining in, so we're calling it World Antibiotic Awareness Day. And the World Health Organization is leading work as a result of a resolution we took to them last May, which got over 60 countries signed up to it. It's developing a global action plan for antimicrobial resistance. And I have to just tell you one little story. So we took this resolution. I'm on the executive board of the WHO. And I decided that if it was left to me and my team from health, we'd get a few countries and we'd probably get it through. But what we really needed to do was show the government was behind it. So we got the Foreign Office to do the diplomacy. And someone said to me recently, it's amazing, your predecessor got a few votes when he took something, but you got over 60 countries. And I said, yes, but it wasn't really me. It was the Foreign Office. Our diplomats did the job, but what a fantastic job. So now the WHO is doing a, a global consultation, what should be in the global action plan. I actually chair their strategic advisory committee, so I hope it'll be all right. And then we have to... Otherwise, I'm sunk. But more to the point, we're all sunk. We um, will take that to the executive board of the WHO in January and then back to the World Health Assembly in May. So the Foreign Office is clearly going to be extraordinarily busy um, making sure that goes through. The equivalent organizations for animals and agriculture are the OIE and FAO, and our foreign office is working with them. And I've just discovered I've got to start working with the international um, organization of customs officials as well, because one of the things that stimulates antibiotic resistance is having 
too low a dose instead of the proper dose. So instead of killing them, you just have a bitter round that stimulates resistance. And the biggest driver of that, after, well, alongside bad prescribing, is actually counterfeit and falsified medicines. And that's where customs officials come in. So my next move will be to go to Brussels and meet the International Organization of Customs Officials. So I hope from what I've been able to tell you, you agree with me and many others that this is an important issue, that it is something I should spend a significant proportion of my time on your behalf on, and that we as a nation should play leadership in. I hope you can see that in the 18 months since my report came out, we've made significant progress, but there's a terrifically long way to go. I'm committed to this for our children and their children, but it could get any of us in our old age, so I hope you'll help me as we go forward. And clearly, one of the ways to make a difference is to communicate. And that was why I did a TED Talk, one of the most scary things I've ever done. And with a couple of colleagues, we wrote the book, The Drugs Don't Work. For those of you who don't know it, actually, The Drugs Don't Work is a song from, I think, the 60s, but it could be a bit late. It's probably later, but not that much later by a group called Verve, but it wasn't these drugs, it was other drugs. <laughs> and I noticed, I noticed that Stephen Fry had picked up the drugs don't work in the Sunday newspapers. But for us, it's about communicating, trying to build this coalition of the public, the expert, and those who can make a difference so that we we can change the world. We can make it a safer place. And as I keep saying to the politicians, we could all be dead of antimicrobial resistance before climate change gets us. <laughs> so they better sort this one for us. Thank you very much.